so first, uh, good evening. God bless you. And we want to welcome our friends in Vanuatu, South Pacific nation of Vanuatu in the South Pacific. And we're going to wave from Carbondale, Colorado, and we're going to say, Me glad to us. Me glad to us. Me glad to us. And there's the, there's the camera right up there. So that's our greetings to Vanuatu. And then we're going to say hello to, to Abraham and his family in Afghanistan. Hello, Abraham. We're praying for you and your family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Vanuatu who are watching this uh, uh, online. And we pray that they would be blessed and they would be encouraged in the most primitive country in the world, yet you're working in a wonderful way. And then we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are also watching this secretly online, that you would continue to just protect Abraham's wife and their children, your guardian angels with your hedge of protection, and they would sense our prayers for them. We look forward to meeting them in your time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we left off last time with the six of the seven churches and the only church that we have not covered, going through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is the final church in Laodicea. So grab your Bibles if you have them. If not, the scripture is right in your handout. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. The Bible says, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. The message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. Verse 16. But since you are the since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me. So you will not be shamed by your nakedness an ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. Verse 19. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Well, Laodicea, where is it? Those of you who have been here know that it's a church, a local church, in what is modern-day Turkey. It's on an important trade route. It's at the junction of if you will, with these various uh, highways that converged in Laodicea in the first century. It's 48 miles from the Church of Philadelphia that we've already studied, and it's 96 miles from the Church of Ephesus that we've already studied. A round-trip visit, if we were to go on that ancient Roman road and follow the mailman, as he brought mail to these churches in the same order that John wrote about these churches, in Revelation, it would be a visit of 325 miles. Once again, these churches are in modern-day Turkey. The city was originally named Diospolis, which means the city of Jupiter. It was given the name Laodicea by King Antiochus II, and the king who named this city uh, after his wife rebuilt it and populated it with Syrians and Jews who migrated from Babylonia. We're going to be talking a lot about Babylonia because hopefully at the end of tonight and then the rest of the study, we're going to be talking about 
what is to come. And Babylonia plays a major, major role in that. This was the banking center of the region, and so they had plenty of money because this was the headquarters of all of the banks of those days. They had lots of entertainment. Maybe you've seen the pictures of the amphitheater there at Laodicea, 30,000 seat amphitheater. And the acoustics were so incredible that you could go up on the stage and just speak in a stage whisper, and everybody in all 30,000 seats could hear without any artificial amplification whatsoever. The ruins still stand. The city also minted coins which portrayed the worship of the pagan deity Zeus, the pagan god Zeus. Laodicea was also well known for the most advanced medical school of its day, particularly in the area of healing eyes, eyes that could not see very well. Aristotle himself even noted that Laodicea was known for the eye medicine, the, uh, the eye salve that was manufactured there. These things were also referred to by Jesus. He talked about Laodicea. He talked about the eye salve. He talked about the medical school. And the Greek word for Laodicea, here it is, comes from Laos, uh, not our modern day Laos, but Laos, which means laity or people. And the word dice, which means to rule. We talked about this earlier when we talked about the Nicolaitans. They were rulers over people. So the church in Laodicea was ruled by people rather than being guided by the Lord. And maybe you have visited a church, or maybe you've heard about a church where the pastor is a very strong figure in that church. No one dares to cross the pastor. The pastor knows what's right. He knows what's best for everybody and everything. Or maybe it's a board of directors that rules that church with an iron fist. There are churches like that even here in America. We talked about that. Be careful. This was like the church in Laodicea. They were ruled by people rather than being guided by the Lord. The Apostle Paul makes at least four references to Laodicea in his book uh, to the Colossians titled Colossians. Interestingly, he references this city several times even though the Apostle Paul never actually visited Laodicea. So why does Jesus refer to himself as we read here to, in, in this passage as the Amen in verse 14. Amen means so be it. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is absolutely certain. I know, so be it. The word witness in verse 1 is from the Greek word martis. And this translated into English simply means martyr. Martis means martyr. So the Bible says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer, suffer persecution. Everyone. Now, to what extent? That doesn't mean we're all going to be killed because of our faith, but we will be mocked, we will be ridiculed, and that's how do we know? The Bible tells us so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. So verse 1 we read tonight is implying. Uh, and there is an implying that Jesus was created by God. There are some religions, even some people right here in the Roaring Fork Valley are saying, aha, proof positive, Jesus is not God. Jesus was created by God. God always was and always will be. But Jesus was created by God. Therefore, Jesus is not God. He is not the same of God. Well, uh, as, as, we, as we read here in verse 1, from the beginning of God's new creation. But the Greek word translated beginning is arche, which means the origin. The Bible says that God the Father created all things through the Son, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, by the power of the Spirit, Genesis 1, verse 2. So, um, Jesus always has been and always will be. So in the last days, the question will be, who is the creator? And we are living in the last days. 
We are living in a time when there are people that are saying Jesus is not equal to God. Jesus is not God. Another example is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Many of you have memorized that. But there are other religions that are false. They've slightly rewritten the Bible and said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Big difference there. And this might be exemplified in what happened a while back in a middle school uh, here in the States. When uh, uh, the first day of school of science class, remember these are eighth, uh, seventh and eighth grade, ninth grade students, that the science teacher said, students, we are going to study first and foremost the scientific proof, the scientific evidence that we have all really come from a primeval slime that developed in swamps that eventually came out of the water and developed on land, and that's why we're all here. We're going to use the scientific method. So all that whole semester for this eighth grade science class, the teacher kept referring to the scientific evidence of evolution. That God really didn't create Adam and Eve as we read about in Genesis chapter 1, but rather we evolved from amoebas and this and that. Well, this eighth grade boy was very circumspect. He showed respect to his teacher. He did his homework, and he did the best he could in that class. Finally, the end of the semester came. The final exam had been completed. The grades were turned in, and the teacher uh, was a little bit bothered that this boy, who he knew was a Christian, did not interrupt him at all. And so he said, class, we've discussed the scientific proof, the scientific evidence that the Genesis account of creation is just a fallacy. We are here because we've evolved in this way that we've studied. And so one final proof, I'm going to do an experiment, one last experiment in the classroom today. With that, he walked over to his desk, opened a drawer, and took out an egg. He said, scientific uh, method? What is this, students? The students all said, an egg. Yes, it's an egg. It looks like an egg. It acts like an egg. It smells like an egg. It feels like an egg. It's an egg. I am going to ask this Christian student who has not bought into the scientific method to stand and pray to his God that he believes in that we know doesn't exist, that when I drop this egg from the height of about six feet to this hard tile floor, that his God would keep that egg from breaking. And if the egg doesn't break, then we know that there is a God. Scientific evidence. Scientific proof. What would you do if you were that egg? Well, the newspaper, the local newspaper reported, and it was verified by the other students, that eighth grade boy followed his teacher's direction, and he stood behind his desk, and he bowed his eyes, and he prayed his prayer out loud. Dear God, I pray that when my teacher drops that egg from six feet down to this hard tile floor, that that egg will smash into a thousand pieces and he will drop over dead. Amen. <laughs> True story. The teacher looked at that egg, looked back at the student, looked back at the egg, looked at the student again, very carefully walked over to his desk, opened the drawer, gently put the egg inside the drawer, and said, Class dismissed. True story. is unusual, it's not the norm, but aren't we seeing evidence of that today? Politically correct theory, science, and with all of these things, Christianity is, there's an attempt to debunk Christianity and to debunk the authority of the Word of God. Evolution is a part of that end time deception. So nearby the city, uh, that we're studying was a town of Hierapolis, and in Hierapolis were hot springs. I suppose 
somewhat like Glenwood Hot Springs that comes to mind. And so the engineers that were quite clever in that day, they built an aqueduct to carry this hot water from Hierapolis through Laodicea and on to Colossae. It was a great idea, and the engineers did a great job building this aqueduct just the right way and the right levels, the water flowed the right direction. But, but by the time the water reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It had lost its hotness, if you will. Now, the Laodiceans, they knew that hot water was useful. They knew that cold water was refreshing. But, 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 but lukewarm water, it really wasn't good for much at all. And Jesus said the same thing about his people. If you're hot, I can use you. If you're cold, I can deal with you. But if you're lukewarm, well, you're not going to be hot enough to be used, nor cold enough to be corrected, in verse 13, or verse 15. So consequently, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth, in verse 16. Now, the literal translation of the word to spit in this case, in the Greek language, is, and I apologize if I'm offensive here to anybody about dinner time, I apologize, but it literally means to vomit. So this church that was satisfied to remain lukewarm rather than to be uh, hot or cold, rather than to be on fire for the Lord, was enough to make Jesus vomit. When this was written, smelters Usually they were men, would take the gold brought in from the nearby mines and melt it with fire until the impurities were burned out. And then they would know the process was complete when they looked into their pots there that they were burning the impurities out and, and this pot of liquid gold and, and the smelter could see the reflection of his own face. Well, because Jesus is the master smelter, he uses heat as well. So to the people of the Laodicean church, who were neither, uh, were impure and carnal and lukewarm, he says, get into the fire. Engage yourself in the fire of ministry like you once did. Not because God wants to watch you burn, but because he wants to warm your heart. And he wants to clean out any of the impurities in your life. Remember when we talked about the diamond a few weeks ago. Diamond basically, as I am told, has the same molecular structure as coal. They're basically the same. The only difference between diamond, a diamond and a chunk of coal is that a chunk of coal has been under tremendous pressure for a long time and tremendous heat so that it is transformed into a diamond. And likewise, when you're going through heat, time of heat, when you're going through a lot of pressure, just remember that Jesus is transforming you into that diamond. So throughout the Bible, white garments that we read about here uh, in verse 18 represent the role of righteousness. Always, always, always. How do we know? The Bible tells us so in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. White garments are given to those who are in Christ. And we are in Christ if we have invited Him to our heart to be our Lord, to be our Savior, and our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Laodiceans were also known for a very unique and very, very special kind of wool. You see, they had this very special flock of sheep that they had bred. They were all black sheep, and the wool taken from this black sheep was very fine in quality. It would be excellent clothing. Yet Jesus tells them, you may have the most fashionable clothing from this very outstanding wool, these black garments, but you need garments of white, righteous garments. And that only comes from the covering of my grace in verse 18. So that's what that's talking about there. In verse 18, Jesus tells the Laodiceans, Get ointment for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. Now they could understand that. Did you remember there was this medical school? They had this special eye cell that was very helpful to so many people. In 
fact, it was Jesus, as you recall, who put mud in the blind man's eyes back in John chapter 9. It was Jesus who allowed irritation to produce illumination. That mud didn't feel so good for a while. Can you imagine having mud in your eyes? But it produced illumination in the blind man could see. He said to the church here, you're seeing everything in a carnal way. He said, you need to humble yourself before me and you need to deal with the mud. David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the paths of everlasting life. In Psalm 129. Confession precedes vision, just as irritation precedes illumination. So if you're experiencing some irritation right now, be a good cheer. Illumination is on the way. Jesus is primarily speaking to the church in verse 30. Tragically, some people go to church all of their lives, but they never, ever hear a message on repentance. They might hear a political message. They might hear an environmental message. They might hear a message about how to vote or how to be good or that everything is good. But, but to those who do open the door of their hearts to Jesus Christ, he said, if you open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus is saying, open your heart to me and I will open heaven to you in verse 21. So that completes our study of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. We have followed an historical timeline. We followed geographically along the old Roman road going from church to church. We've learned that there's a practical application. We've learned that there's a personal application in our lives as well. And we've learned that there's an ecclesiastical application that is, uh, sorry, <laughs> that is uh, an application to, uh, to our end to our churches as well. So let's turn the page now and start with chapter 4. The things that will happen. Revelation is the only book of the Bible with its own divine outline. We've talked about that. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, what you have seen, we've already gone over that, is the reality of the resurrected Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3, which we have studied, the things that are now happening at the time that John was writing these letters to these seven churches uh, is what was happening at that time. Uh, it, it, it covers the chronology of church history from the beginning of the early church to the present. Chapters 4 through 22 are the things that will happen. So, a quick outline of chapters 4 through 22, chapters 4 and 5. We're going to see the church is raptured, taken up to heaven for a seven-year honeymoon with our Lord. Just like in the traditional Jewish wedding, the bride and the groom are sequestered for seven days as the, as the wedding party continues for a whole week. And then at the end of seven days, the bride and the groom come out and everybody celebrates together. So we will be on the seven-year, not a seven-day, but a seven-year honeymoon with our Lord during the time of the tribulation here on planet Earth. Chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation occurs on Earth as God pours out, pours out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And chapter 20, the millennium, a 1,000-year period of time of peace and prosperity as our Lord rules and reigns from Jerusalem. And yes, we'll get there in chapter 20, we will learn that we get to be here during that time for a thousand years on a new earth, and it is going to be incredible. It's going to be, spoiler alert, just like the Garden of Eden, with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. At the end of the millennium, Satan is loosed, and then a final rebellion takes place before Satan is permanently cast into hell. That's the second battle of Armageddon. We'll talk about 
chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, we'll read about a new heaven, newer, uh, and where we will live forever and ever and ever, and we'll learn about more about what we'll be what we'll be doing during that time. Now, in your notes, you have this chart, a chronological view of Revelation by chapters. And your homework last week was to just look through it. It's color-coded, uh, brown, blue, pink, yellow, and green. The brown is when John was on the island of Patmos. The blue, the church age. Uh, that's part of the time that we're in right now, church age. That included the seven churches of Revelation. That includes where we are right now, the church age. Uh, the pig, the tribulation period. We're not in that time right now. That is coming. Uh, and then, after that, the yellow is the millennium, 1,000 year period of time. You can see that on your chart. And then finally, the green, the new heaven and the new earth. And so there you have uh, the chapters of the book of Revelation in that. So, David, what happens if I die before the church is raptured? This question is asked, and understandably so, over and over again. The Bible says, when the saved die, that's us, we go directly into the presence of the Lord. Jesus said, you remember the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he was. At the moment of death, the believer goes immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ. Your last breath on earth is your first breath in heaven, although it happens faster than that. Paul said, we are confident, I say, and would prefer, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body that is separated from the body by death and at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The soul on death, the soul, what makes us us? What makes you you? What makes you unique? Who you really are? The soul goes immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. The moment you die. So if I die tonight, my soul goes immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. And I'm reunited with my father and mother and loved ones. And all the saints from the New Testament and the Old Testament are already in heaven. And it's going to be wonderful, or cremated, or whatever, until the day of resurrection, when Jesus returns to the earth. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, tells us, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. The body is asleep, whether it's in the grave, whether it's cremated, whether it's at the bottom of the ocean, wherever it might be. Christians who die, though, they're, they're who they are. Their soul is with Jesus. The soul is in the conscience, presence of the Lord. But the bodies have fallen asleep in Him. The body sleeps in the grave. Uh, Paul described the reunion of the body and soul in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel. And with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those of us that are believers, those people that have accepted Jesus Christ, years prior, whether it goes back to the first century or whatever, we go up just a little bit before those that are still alive on planet Earth. It's in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But we get to go first. So that's pretty cool. At least those who have died in Christ. It's a promise of our future bodily resurrection. We're going to talk about what our bodies will look like, how old we'll be. Spoiler alert, we are not all going to be 33 years old because that's what Jesus was when he was crucified. No, it's better than that. So we'll get to that. Some people say, if you've heard that, no, and show me that in the Bible. I can't find it. It's um, 1 Corinthians 15 says that our bodies will be raised imperishable with a body that is perfect in every way. Now, my wife is almost perfect in every way. It's hard for me to imagine Robin being even more beautiful than she is today. It's really hard for me to imagine that, but she will be. We will all be perfect in every way. Our bodies will never decay. They will never wear out. 
Never get tired. Never be injured. Never have to go to the hospital or to a doctor's office. Never grow old. Never have to take vitamins or any other supplements. Hallelujah. Never be sick and never die. If you know Jesus, you're going from the land of dying to the land of living. Christians have known this since the first century, and that's why the Christians in the first century can be so confident, even though they are going through times a lot worse than any of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. The word cemetery is an interesting Greek word. It comes from a Greek word meaning sleeping place. That's what the word cemetery actually means in, in Greek. Um, so Christians are confident in the promise of the resurrection. Now people say, can God raise uh, someone from the dead if the body's been burned, or we talked about an atomic explosion, or vaporized in some way? If God can raise the dead, God can raise the dead. If God can raise the dead, he can do anything. He can raise the dead. Resurrection is God's problem. How he does it, it's not ours. We don't need to know the how of the resurrection as long as we know the who of the resurrection. So once our bodies are raised, we'll be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians 4.17 says, We will be with the Lord forever. John 14 says, or Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms or mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going here to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. He right now is preparing a place for you. And it's going to be really cool. Better than the nicest house you've ever seen. Anywhere. Anywhere. It's going to be a perfect mansion. So, Chapters 4 and 5, the church is raptured and taken to heaven for our seven-year honeymoon with the Lord. Let's read chapter 4 of Revelation. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Verse 4, 24 thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. Verse 6. In front of the throne was a shining sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Verse 8. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day, night after night, they kept on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Verse 9, whenever the living beings gave glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, uh, to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. So, in the first three chapters of Revelation, we read a lot about the church. 
In fact, the word church appears 19 times just in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. From chapter 4 to the end of the book of Revelation, the word church never appears. Why? Why might you ask? Because from chapter 4, the church is taken out of this world into heaven. The church doesn't exist. After church history, we're in the time right now, the church age right now, but when the last person gets saved, whether that's in Vanuatu, Afghanistan, Carbondale, wherever that may be, when the last person opens the door of their heart to Jesus Christ, then the bride of Christ is complete. For the church is the bride of Christ. And we're going on. We, it, could be, it could happen any second. Maybe right now somebody in Vanuatu or Afghanistan, or maybe someplace in, in Ukraine has opened the door of their life to Jesus Christ. Boom! When that happens, that last person is saved. Then God the Father says to the Son, Now, Son, go get your bride. And Jesus loves his bride more than any group has ever loved their bride in the history of all humankind. And Jesus lets out a shout, Yay! And he comes down and he calls us up to meet him in the air. And that's known as the rapture. Not the second coming of Jesus Christ, because Jesus just comes down, you know, to the clouds. We go up, and we meet him in the air. That's the rapture. So the bride of Christ is complete. We're going up. The rapture can happen at any moment. Luke chapter 17, I give you some references there. Luke 21, which is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Why the Olivet Discourse? It's because this is the place that Jesus taught more on this subject than at any other time, and it took place on the Mount of Olives. And it's on the Mount of Olives that Jesus will return. He will set feet when the second coming takes place on the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says, we'll get to it a little bit later, that there will be a great earthquake like there has never been in the history of the world. And seismologists today are saying this, this fault that was discovered not too long ago has more pressure than tectonic plates, you know, about earthquakes, than any other fault on the globe, any other fault in the planet. And the, and the geologists, the seismologists, are saying, we don't understand why this mountain just hasn't split open by now. But we know the answer. We can tell it's going to happen soon. It's going to happen real soon. The mountain's going to split open, and that's when Jesus Christ sets his feet on the mountain of Olives. For those of you going to Israel with us, uh, in April, we're going to go up to the top of Mount Olives, and we're going to look out over the city of Jerusalem. We're going to be right there at ground zero, where it happens. So the comparative view of the Olivet Discourse is right here, taking a look at when these things will happen. You see right up in the blue box here, Luke chapter 21, and the verses are given. What are the signs of his coming? Luke chapter 17, and the verses. What are the signs of the end of the world? Luke chapter 21. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different men under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but all with different perspectives. They're seeing the same thing, but they're seeing it from a different angle. Much like if we were uh, at one of the intersections in Glenwood, and we, some of us happened to be on one corner, and others at another corner, and others at another corner, and others at another corner, north, south, east, west corner of an intersection. We were all there. And let's say that there was a traffic accident. Fortunately, nobody was injured, but the cars were pretty well banged up. Well, the person on the north corner would have a different view than the people on the south corner. They would have a different view than the people on the west corner. They would have a different view than the people on the east corner. It would be the same accident. But we'd be seeing it from different perspectives. That's kind of like the four Gospels. So I've condensed it here in this chart for you, along with other passages, so I encourage you to read over that at your leisure. Chapter 4 gives us a glimpse into heaven. God is on the throne. It's God who's on the throne. The world is not spinning out of control. Like the old gospel song, spiritual hymn says, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. You and me, sister. In his hands. He's got the whole world 
in his hands. He's not fretting. He's not wringing his hands. He's in control. And the God of creation will carry out his plans in his perfect time. John is giving us that glimpse of heaven before showing us what's going to take place on earth. Why in this order? I believe so that we won't be frightened. So many people are afraid to go read the book of Revelation. There's dragons, there's beasts, there's hell, there's demons, there's all these terrible things, there's locusts and wars and famine and destruction and poison. Asteroids getting near all these things we're going to be reading about. I believe under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, John is saying, wait a minute, before we go there, let's remind everybody that God's on the throne. He's still in control. Nothing's out of control. And uh, just, just be at peace. Just be at peace. You don't need to be frightened by these future events. So verse 1 of this chapter begins with, Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. This reminds you perhaps of a verse that you may have memorized from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Remember that was to the church of Laodicea. And it was written primarily to Christians. And some of you have noted, but there's no door handle on that on the outside of the door. No, there's not. Jesus can't pull the door handle on the outside of the door, his classic painting. Uh, because there is no door, door handle. The door handle is on the inside of the door. So it's up to us to turn the handle, to open the door of our hearts, to allow Jesus to come in. He doesn't force his way in like that bear. And I think Lake Tahoe has forced his way into like dozens of homes and, and eating everything in sight because he doesn't want to take a long winter's nap. So Jesus doesn't force his way in. Everyone who opens the door of their heart to Jesus will see the door of heaven open to them. Bible says, John not only saw an open door, but he heard a clear invitation to come up here. This invitation was from Jesus. The voice sounded like a trumpet blast, we read in verse 1. This refers to the rapture. When our Lord appears in the clouds, he's going to take us, his bride, to heaven. The voice of John heard that sounded like a trumpet blast, like a trumpet blast, it's not a trumpet, it's like a trumpet blast. It's the voice of Christ. How do we know? Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call, trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Verse 17, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Verse 2 says that John was in the Spirit and saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Now four times in the book of Revelation, John says he was in the Spirit. Revelation 1, Revelation 4, Revelation 17, and Revelation 21. The Holy Spirit was giving John a vision showing him things he would otherwise not know and we would not know. The Jasper stone in verse 3 here was a clear stone. Another word, as we talked about earlier, for diamond. It represents light. John describes this diamond or this Jasper as clear as crystal in Revelation chapter 21, verse 11. Because God is light, and He's not in the dark about heartaches or challenges or problems we're experiencing, He's invited us to find healing and hope in His perfect love. He knows what you're going through. He knows every hair on your head. He knows your name. So He's invited us to find this healing and hope and love in His perfect love through the ruby red blood of Jesus Christ. And the nails, as the nails pierced his hands, and the crown of thorns was clubbed on his head, and as this spear sliced into his, into his side, Romans chapter 5, it represents, it's represented by this ruby red stone, this carnelian stone in verse 3. Carnelian is also translated as ruby. 
and is one of the twelve stones on the breastplate of the high priest. We talked about that back in the book of Exodus. There is one stone on this breastplate of the high priest uh, for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. You can read more about that in Exodus chapter 28. The first of the twelve stones, uh, sorry, the first of the twelve sons of, of Jacob was Reuben, and his name means behold a son. And his stone was the carnelian, or this ruby red stone. The last of the twelve sons was Jacob. Uh, the twelve sons of Jacob was Benjamin, whose name means son of my right hand. Benjamin's stone was a jasper, also known as a diamond. So this one sitting on the throne in verse 3 is Jesus. Behold the Son of my right hand. It ties in beautifully all the way back to the book of Exodus. The Bible says in this passage, the throne of God is surrounded by a rainbow in verse 3. As you know, the rainbow represents God's grace back in Genesis chapter 9 verse 16 when he told Noah, I will never, ever again destroy the world with a flood. He didn't say he would destroy the world with fire, but he said he would destroy the world with a flood. Do you remember that? So as Christians, we're invited to come boldly into his throne of grace. Grace. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, it's amazing. Grace. So around the main throne was a circle of 24 other thrones. And elders sat on these thrones dressed in white and wearing crowns of gold. You know, the Bible tells us so. These 24 elders refer to the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Because each of the 12 dates in the New Testament is the name of one of the patriarchs. 12 dates in, in heaven, each gate has the name of one of the twelve patriarchs. And each of the foundations of the new city of Jerusalem has the name of an apostle. We'll talk about that more in Revelation 21. In fact, a little spoiler alert. The size of the new Jerusalem is a cube and it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. How do we know? The Bible tells us so exactly. We'll talk more about that. So the 24 elders represent all of God's people. The patriarchs representing the Old Testament saints, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Noah, all the boys there, Elisha and Elijah. And the apostles represent the New Testament saints, the church age, you and I. Do you remember the lightning and thunder? that appeared on Mount Sinai. Do you remember the account of that when Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? When God gave his people the laws. Do you remember that in Exodus chapter 19? Remember, John is writing to people in the first century who are going through terrible times. Times as bad and maybe even worse than what Abraham and his family are going through in Afghanistan tonight. Times as bad, maybe even worse than what's happening in or North Korea tonight. Or a church that is under persecution in different countries around the world tonight. So John's encouraging the believers in the first century that God is going to appear once again to pour out justice on the earth. Verse 5. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 2. When John uh, describes seven torches with burning flames, this represents the sevenfold nature of God's spirit. The seven torches represent the Holy Spirit of God, clearly defined Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2. Now glass, as clear as glass, glass was very, very rare in New Testament times. And crystal clear glass was just absolutely impossible to find. Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So this shiny sea of glass, uh, a sparkling like crystal that we read about in verse 6, represents the peace of God. Uh, the four living beings in verse 6 that are described uh, in, in greater detail, if you want to learn more about that, in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 2, well, they're the cherubim. 
They're a special class of angels. Remember, we talked about angels. And if you weren't here uh, for that lesson that we did on angels, we did a lot of study about angels, lots of verses. We talked about guardian angels, different types of angels. You can go out and condition, and there would be no hope for salvation. They would be condemned for eternity. How do we know? Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. The four faces of these cherubim, very interesting. They correspond to the four Gospels. These four faces, you read up verse 7. Matthew, if you study the book of Matthew, you'll read about this. Matthew presents Jesus as a king, represented by the face of a lion. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, represented by the face of an ox. Luke presents Jesus in his humanity, represented by the face of a man. And John presents Jesus as the Son of God, represented by the face of an eagle. Our very first Sunday, Robin and I had been, we just moved from Hawaii, we had been here for one week, one week exactly, in the Roaring Fork Valley, and we just felt different reasons won't go into it, but the Lord was leading us to visit the orchard in Carbondale. We'd never been here. And so we got out a map, we followed the road, and right as we came along the old Catherine Store Road, you know, coming up through the valley, it's never happened since. One time, our very first Sunday on our church, a beautiful bald eagle came right down, right next to the passenger door, Bob waved at the eagle, the eagle waved, well, <laughs> and followed us for a long time, you know, maybe 30 seconds or so, followed us for a long time along the road, and we turned into the orchard and we said, yep, this is the place for us. And we never looked back. But that's just a little side note. But the eagle, interestingly enough, you know this, soars higher in the sky than any other creature that God made. It's the only animal that can look directly into the sun. Just as the Son of God is the only being who can look directly into the face of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. These cherubim we see, they never stop singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was and is, and it is still to come in verse 8. The word holy, not too difficult from the Greek language, simply means whole, to be made whole without flaw in any way. These cherubim, worship God, not because they have to. They're in ecstasy. They're in awe. They're always discovering new things about God, attributes about God, the creation of God. And that's what we get to do forever and ever and ever. It will never be ended. It's like going to Disneyland and there's a new Adventureland or Tomorrowland or Fantasyland or whatever. Every day, there's always something new. And we we go, wow. This is awesome. So, not because they're programmed to do this. They got to make a bunch of little robots saying, not like a parrot. No, they're overwhelmed by his beauty and holiness. Psalmist writes in Psalm 29, honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for his glory and strength. Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his heavens. And we're going to, we'll talk about that later. We're going to get to explore the universe, explore new galaxies, new colors, new dimensions, new sights, new sounds. Wow, it's going to be great. And the cherubim worship, and then the 24 elders, they go, wow, this is awesome. And they join in in verse 10, and they cast their, their crowns before the throne. Now the Bible means five different crowns reserved for, uh, for those who are obedient to his call. And we talk about this over very quickly once again. The crown of life, the martyr's crown, you read about this, we read about it in Revelation chapter 2, uh, was given to those who have suffered much, yet endured, maybe even given their life with sweet Christian spirit, even unto death, the gospel. Number two, the incor incorruptible crown, also known as the victor's crown, given to those who forsake the pleasures of the world in order to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 9, the crown of glory, the elders' crown given to those who have given their lives to the teaching of the Bible. 
First Peter chapter 5, this isn't just elders in the church or pastors or missionaries or evangelists. This is people that may be shutting in their home. And maybe they're just calling somebody up and encouraging them with the verse of scripture. Somebody that's maybe at, at the workplace taking time out from work to have coffee with a friend and saying, hey, can I share with you this song I read this morning in my devotions? The crown of righteousness is given to, the, given to those who look forward to the return of Jesus Christ and live accordingly, 2 Timothy chapter 4. A person who lives in constant expectation of Jesus' uh, return is going to live righteously because, well, you must be um, righteous when Jesus comes, even though our righteousness comes from shedding his blood. Finally, the crown of rejoicing, the soul winner's crown, given to those who have given themselves to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I messaged a man this past week. He just can't help but talking about Jesus. He doesn't carry a big Bible around. In fact, he doesn't carry a Bible around at all. He's memorized a lot of Bible verses. But he said, he just tells people, have a good day. Say, well, have a good day too. He said, well, thank you. God bless you. And they'll say, they'll say, well, thank you. Thank you for asking God to bless me. I hope God blesses you. And they open the door and start talking about how you know God through Jesus. It's, it's just natural. Finally, the crown of rejoicing, the soldier's crown we talked about. And the purpose of the crowns isn't to make a fashion statement. You know, we walk around, oh, how many crowns do you have? Oh, mine's gold. Oh, what's yours? Does yours have it? 10 diamonds or 46 diamonds? Does yours look like, like the Queen of England or does it look, look more like the Queen of Zandra, King of Zanzibar? No, it's not a fashion statement. It was what they represent. They're highly significant. This life is the only life we have to earn these crowns. Uh, so no wonder Paul tells us to run the race so that we may win the prize, win the crown, because it's the Lord gives us the ability to witness. It's not us. It's not something we muster up the strength and courage. God gives us the strength. He gives us the courage. He opens the door to witness, to love God, and to love people. It's the Lord who gives us the ability to lay down our life if we need to for ministry. So when we get to heaven, we'll say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Verse 11. Um, so the final question is to tonight. <laughs> so how do we worship? The Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And it literally means to turn and kiss. To face the other way and to kiss. To take our eyes off what we were so focused on. To look back and to kiss. So true worship is a sincere expression intended for the Lord's pleasure. Worship is the program of heaven and the purpose of all creation. Why did God create the magpie birds and the cassowary bird and the hummingbird and the eagle? Why did he create all these creatures, big and small? Why did he create the flowers in their splendor? Everything longs for his return. We're going to talk about that. I wanted to talk about that tonight. Will there be dogs and cats and horses in heaven? It's in your notes. If you want to read ahead, you can. The notes are all there. But we're going to have to leave off now with chapter uh, 5. Uh, so chapters 1 and 2, John sets the stage to record about what's to take place. Chapter 4, the curtain rises. As he describes the throne room of the king. We're going to come back to heaven. We're just looking at the throne room tonight. Chapter 5. Next week, the drama begins. Next week is when we talk about what's going on around the world. What's happening even here in the United States. Is the United States found in Scripture? Is Russia found in Scripture? Is Germany found in Scripture? What about China? Well... The answer is yes and no. Some countries are, some countries aren't. We're going to talk about that. Chapter 5. We're going to see, look, it's, don't miss it. It's incredibly interesting about the scroll. What it represents. If you've ever bought or sold any property in your life, a home in your life, in Europe, or in North America, or many other countries around the world, you will what the scroll and the seven seals represent. So, God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you alone are worthy to open up the scroll. It's an incredible picture 
of our heritage, title deed of planet Earth. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't need to be troubled as we plunge in to the tribulation next week. We don't need to be troubled. You said, if you believe in God, believe in me and my Father's house and many mansions that would prepare a place for you. Thank you, Lord, that you're preparing that place for us tonight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we can't wait to hear that sound, to meet you in the air, and to have that seven honeymoon with you, seven year honeymoon with you, before we return to a new earth, new heaven in Jesus' name. I ask your blessing, Lord, on the folks here tonight, on those watching, wherever they may be, here in Colorado, across the United States, in Potawatomi, or uh, in uh, Afghanistan. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Our time is up. Didn't get quite as far, but uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. So uh, next week, we'll see you.